What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hetness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Ip Brown, and we speak about self-determination theory and facilitation as a life skill to facilitate social interactions. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back to be inspired. Hello, Ip. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here to geek out a little bit about facilitation and self-determination theory. And before we're getting there, I always start with the same question. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? And actually, do you? Well, in a sense, I don't. I'm much concerned with facilitation. And I think of myself as somebody who does facilitation. But taking out that identity as facilitator hasn't really mm, occurred to me or hasn't been that particularly important to me. But I like to think that I train people to become facilitators. That I do a lot. That's an interesting edge to train someone to become a facilitator and still not calling yourself a facilitator. Exactly. That's strange, isn't it? How about a trainer of facilitators? That yes. I could identify with. Yes. How much do you use your facilitation and training? Well, since what I train mostly is facilitation, I use facilitation in that training. So, like yesterday, I had 22 people together in a room for six hours and structuring that whole process, helping them understand and practice what meeting facilitation is. I, of course, use facilitation because that six-hour process is, in a sense, a meeting, only it's a meeting or a workshop that deals with, you know, how do the participants become better facilitators? Yeah. And of course, if the training session has to be facilitated very much so by me, and I do that. And people notice that along the way, and occasionally we talk about it. Did you notice when I just did? That sort of thing. Yeah, isn't it nice that in a train in a facilitation training we can basically constantly switch between the meta level and the actual facilitation? Yes. That that's what I that's what I find very pleasant about teaching facilitation because it is sort of what I'm doing right now is what I'm teaching you also. So mm -hmm. that everything I do becomes exemplary. It is something to be looked at and I'm sort of practicing what I preach or at least I try to do. So that's a very good arena for showing other people what facilitation is like because they're very attuned to facilitation skills, which they might not be in a workshop or a meeting that is about something else. Mm. Because then their attention is focused on that other subject, that something else. But here the subject is facilitation. So the whole day is spent sort of in meta-level reflection and uh, looking at what I do and exercises when they try to do that themselves. Yeah. According to you, what is the maybe most underrated facilitation skill? Well, I can tell you that. And um, 
I consider the most important and not so much talked about part of facilitation is not this whole business about including and opening up and ensuring participation. But when you take facilitation into the meeting, the regular everyday meeting, uh, the nuts and bolts of many organizations, when you take facilitation into that space, what becomes very important is helping people uh, move along. Denmark, where I operate, is a very democratic and egalitarian country. And for the past 50 years or so, we've had meetings that are very inclusive. Everybody gets to speak. We have a, a dogma called the word is free. It doesn't translate so well, but it means you can say, we can speak whatever is on your mind. And this is what people do at meetings. So very important facilitation skills becomes how to guide a meeting through this sea of contributions. Everybody wanting to speak and expecting to be allowed to speak and speak their minds about pretty much anything. So Danish meetings are a very open forum compared to meetings in many other countries and how to navigate through this forum and help people shorten their contributions and get to the point and not stray off focus and politely and diplomatically helping people reach a goal by focusing their minds on this particular topic. So mm -hmm. that that thing about helping people focus their conversation, that's an underrated facilitation skill, I would say. Thank you. It's so interesting. I, I would bet that many in the audience would consider this a luxury problem to have yeah. too many people who actually want to contribute and to have this openness and inclusivity as a default. And this just raises my awareness how much facilitation needs cultural awareness exactly. and how much we have to adapt and adjust to the context that we are bringing to the room and our participants have. Exactly. And I wonder, do you then in the Danish culture also have this openness that you can tell people to speak less or to come to a point? Or is it more of the polite culture? So are you more the, on the Dutch side or more on the British side of politeness? <laughs> Danes are generally not considered very polite because we don't have the um, the elegant uh, forms of speech that uh, that Brits have or we, we abandoned, we skipped those 50 years ago. <laughs> and we're more blunt and direct. But that's not really so in the meeting when it comes to focusing the conversation because we have another um, democratic or respectful or egalitarian principle, and that is, uh, which is well known in other, would you say, well-behaved cultures as well, and that is don't interrupt other people. So that's sort of that's sort of a prohibition that that other people should be able to speak their minds, and maybe that goes along with the democratic, or that's just a general concern. And it's a very nice principle. And and when you're four years old, your parents teach you don't interrupt the grown-ups when they speak. And then for the rest of our lives, we try to be grown up and try to allow other people to speak their minds and complete their sentences and not jump in. And then when these people become or when Danes then become facilitators, many people who are drawn to that profession or that skill 
are people who are very attentive and very good listeners and very inclusive of mind. And that means that when they get together in a meeting and there are people who exert themselves and try to express themselves very much, then these, um, I would call them timid facilitators, don't really uh, interrupt and are shy to do so. So even though we may be blunt, or that's in a way that's part of my facilitator training, that is, how can you interrupt other people, not in a blunt or impolite way, but in a very polite and and um, acknowledging and respectful and um, diplomatic way. So that's some of, usually I have a, a module, like an hour's worth of so during a training where we practice the skill of interrupting somebody who speaks off topic in a very polite and inclusive way. <laughs> you have one tip for the listeners. I think this is might be the number one challenge of many. Yeah, I think it is too. I have a whole bunch of tips. And if I can just give you the, the, the most discreet, when you have a topic, you're talking about topic A, and then somebody uh, starts speaking and gradually develops into topic B, because that other topic is at the forefront of that person's mind. Then the first simple thing a facilitator can do is not to say, hey, you're talking about about B, and you're not supposed to do that. And that's too much. Uh, all you need to do really is to say, hmm, B. Um, like, like yesterday, we had an exercise where I set the group up to talk about a department at a, a regular uh, organization, and they have sort of a, a little kitchen space, and it's also it's always very messy in that kitchen space. So let's talk about how do we take responsibility for cleaning up this kitchen space. And then somebody who might instruct it, you know, to do this uh, jumped in and say, well, we really need to talk about our, our team spirit and the whole psychological security in our department because that's really failing. That's a much bigger and much more important issue than about cleaning up. And, and I said simply, team spirit. And then she babbled on as you were supposed to. This was an exercise. Then I said, But cleaning up the kitchen, and then when I told the other attendees was afterwards, was that but just by pointing out the new topic that is being brought up by the other person, that other person may not really realize that this is a different topic. So simply by saying it and alerting that person and the other people in the room, their attention to the fact that a new topic has entered the conversation is a forewarning that if that doesn't Uh, straighten itself up. Um, then later, like 30 seconds later, I will jump in again and help the person return to the topic a bit more um, directly and uh, more than discreetly. So, so mentioning the other topic and reminding everybody of the original topic, those are two very discreet interventions that can be said very uh, quietly and smiling and so on. Uh, like inquiring in a way, but alerting people to the fact that I am the facilitator, I am monitoring everything that is being said around this table, and when it's no longer on target, I will do something, but I will do it very discreetly to begin with. So I'm not even saying you can't talk about this, you must talk about that, I'm just mentioning the new topics. And if these people know me, they also know, okay, it is waking up. He's uh, getting on track now. He will be more forceful 20 seconds later on this, unless this person returned to the topic. So that's one simple tip. Beautiful. Thank you. And 
I find it beautiful because it also exemplifies some other facilitation skills like making the implicit explicit, which is yes. so important. And you you model that by highlighting what's happening implicitly and making it explicit. That's actually a good principle. I usually think of that in terms of the facilitator must must make it clear to the participants what the uh, consequences of actions are, such that if, if a group is reluctant to make a decision about something and just wants to move on, then the facilitator has the responsibility to say, okay, if we don't make this decision right now, then these certain other things will happen. We may have to drop this project. And are you ready to go and inform the CEO that we have decided to drop this project at some later stage? Maybe they say, yes, we are. They think, well, gee, that's not what I want to do. So let's make this decision now. But you're saying making the implicit explicit. I like that. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Would you elaborate that? What kinds of things are you thinking of when you're saying making the implicit explicit? For instance, what I think about immediately are how we use certain words and that we might not have the same definition of the words we are using. Right. Or if a decision is about to be made, are we? Um, what are assumptions and are these assumptions explicit to all so that everyone knows what we're actually discussing or agreeing upon? Right. And I think especially for uncomfortable topics, it's very soothing for groups to hide behind buzzwords and assumed agreement mm -hmm. or just the illusion of agreement. Because if you then unpeel the onion, you realize that actually they are not. Right. So that's a nice task for a facilitator to bring those unsaid things into the open yeah. and, and take on this uh, responsibility of, uh, of making yeah. it clear to everyone what we're actually talking about. And I think to, in order to be able to do that, the facilitator really needs to listen to these nuances and maybe listen to what's not said and to the atmosphere of the group in order to then voice it, first to sense it and then to voice it. Right. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. In our exploration call, you said a beautiful sentence that we must facilitate every social interaction. Right. And what I hear when, when you said that was facilitation is actually more than a meeting skill. Facilitation is actually a life skill that everyone needs to be trained at. Yes. What did you mean by that? Well, sort of along the lines that you just indicated that um, to become aware of what we're actually doing when we are interacting socially and not just go along with hidden assumptions and convention, but get on top of things and, and make things clear. What are we doing here? And then changing course if that needs to be done. And that's the mandate that a facilitator has when we're in a meeting or a workshop and I'm sitting at the end of the table and I can do these things. That mandate is not usually visible or, or had at all in social interactions where we are quite often uh, rather uh, equal in a conversation or uh, four friends sitting around a table or a dinner conversation or meeting people in the street or uh, going to uh, PTA meetings at school with parents and teachers and so on. So all those uh, social spaces 
quite often, I think, needs some reflection and some redesign. That's a big word. But at least um, that you go in and look at how has this been done for the past five or 50 years? And is this a proper form or should we change the form, the process a little? Mm. And that's the sort of will that a facilitator has to look at process and form and think, okay, we have a content here. And that's about people talking or, or sharing a meal or doing stuff. Uh, can we do this in a better way? And I think um, if you're putting on your facilitator's glasses, you will discover many social interactions that are deeply wanting and really uh, need some changing around. Yes. And, and one thing that occurs to me is right now, I did my, my undergraduate work in England. I'm a Danish citizen. And then my PhD in the States. And in both of those countries, I learned a lot about social interactions that was not a native to Danish culture, where like the Nordic, the other Nordic countries, we are on the whole fairly um, sort of centered around our own stable little group of friends. And we don't look much to strangers. We don't include them. We don't see them. We don't talk to them. If you walk down a city street in the uh, in the U.S., especially small towns, you are available for conversation and people can address you, even though you are a complete stranger and you're supposed to answer. And Americans have learned to do this. It's not something that is inborn. It's not a native thing, but it's a cultural thing. But Danes haven't learned this. So when we walk in the street or go to the supermarket, we are totally and completely alone, even though surrounded by hundreds of other people, because they are not socially available to us. That's mm -hmm. a very strange thing. So only people that you know can you actually talk to. And then the question arises, how do you get to know people? Well, you just generally don't. Or you stay at home at night when you're young and drink with your friends, and then you go out at midnight and you're so drunk that your inhibitions about talking to strangers have fallen away. And then you can have fun for the next six hours. And that's how social life in many cases, at least at bars and parties and so on, uh, happen in Denmark. And that certainly you can, you know, ask, is that a, is that a, productive or fruitful way to have social rules and morals and so on. And could we find ways of socializing and having parties that did not involve drinking so much that uh, our inhibitions only fall when we have consumed five or 10 drinks? Or if you have uh, completed a facilitation training. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of social events, if they had a bit more facilitation, very discreetly, very elegantly, we could do away with a lot of that alcohol. Mm -hmm. And and there are other cultures where you don't drink and people still socialize. I have a friend of uh, Arabic origins, and I just talked to her last night, and she tells me about how she gets together with friends and they just start dancing after having drunk a couple of cups of tea, and that will be completely unheard of in Denmark. You need drink in order to socialize properly in Denmark. And that's why we have a huge youth drinking problem in this country, I think, because the cultural norms are such that it's very difficult mm -hmm. to, to talk to strangers and to bond and to find a partner as you want to do when you're between 20 and 30. Interesting. What came to my mind was the risk of over-facilitating. And yes. so now it's... It's not as frequent anymore, but I had the phase where my friends would tell me, Miriam, please stop facilitating. 
<laughs> don't be such a facilitator or warn right. me, Miriam, please don't facilitate your date. <laughs> and I think this can put our environments in very awkward situations. Because I think if we're in the role of a facilitator, suddenly our voice changes and there is this more kind of directive. And yeah. this would, I guess, lead or could lead to the opposite of opening up the social space. Yeah. And I wonder whether it's then more about the intentional design rather than the facilitation itself. Well, but intentional design also requires, and I think what people notice when you or I start facilitating in a space that does not usually see facilitation, it's probably because we don't have the mandate. We have not been put in the position of, well, you're the facilitator. Why don't you guide us through this social occasion? This is what happens in meetings where it's nice to have a, a chairperson or a meeting manager or a facilitator. But in a social situations, those things don't exist. Yes. You can have a host and you can have nine friends over for dinner, but that doesn't mean that you're allowed to uh, direct the conversation and say, now we have a plenary conversation and now we split up into groups and you two and you two and you two talk together. That's completely unheard of and silly uh, in social situations, right? And if you start doing that, people will spot that immediately. I mean, if you do much, much less than that, if you have designs for people that way, they will they will feel slightly pushed around or nudged or manipulated. And they will say, hey, you're not at work. Relax. This is just social. So that's the challenge that one faces as a facilitator. So one certainly shouldn't overdo it. But there are aspects of facilitation that are sort of culturally well-established already. And maybe they're a lot more like meeting design, but like having a seating plan. If you have friends over for dinner, you have a seating plan. And that's completely culturally accepted. And people are usually pleased with not having to sit next to their spouse or their partner, which otherwise they might feel obliged to do so as not to leave the partner alone in this party of my friends. So the host will divide them and set them apart and they can only reconnect hours later. Most people accept that. And I think social spaces in that way could be opened up for more facilitation. I suppose you know in your culture as well, you invite 50 people for an anniversary or a big birthday bash or a wedding or so, and then people will sit down and eat. And in our culture, well, people sit down and eat for four or six hours. And you're sitting next to the same two people on your left and your right and one pe person across from you. And you're sitting there talking to them for four or six hours. It's very difficult in most situations, unless you really hit it off. You want to sort of get up and stretch your legs and meet some other people after an hour or two. And this can be institutionalized. And it sometimes happens by the host simply saying, okay, everybody get up and change places according to this plan that I'm telling you about now. Or every other person gets up and move three spaces to the right, something like that. So everybody gets a new dinner partner. That's acceptable. People will say, okay, sure, why not? So little things like that can be done, but you're quite right. Be very careful about not over-facilitating, yeah. especially those informal spaces. Yeah. That, that, that can be overdone. And people will say, hey, Miriam, sit down. <laughs> and isn't it funny that for a wedding party or big anniversary, it is, again, socially accepted to basically change social norms? It's almost like a game. So we are changing the rules for these hours and everyone is mm -hmm. very happy to follow. 
And I think for the smaller, more informal events, we even have to be more subtle. And there I realized that sometimes we can just nudge by having, for instance, question cards on the table. And then people automatically ask each other the question. You don't even have to introduce it. Really? Have you found that? Yes. Okay, interesting. So you put cards on a table and you don't say what they're about? No, and there's a question on it. And then, well, maybe I'm biased or maybe my friends are biased. Um, this has worked with you. So they pick up the card and ask the question. Yeah. Interesting. That's nice. I've 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 experienced that too. I have a colleague who does that occasionally, bring question cards. But I've also been in other contexts where, when people picked up the card, they dropped it like it was a hot potato because it, it it was sort of it was felt I think like over facilitating. Like, don't you think we can make conversation without mm. your questions? So that's a, you have to gauge what are the people that you're with and what will they accept under the circumstances. But I agree with you when when it when it starts, people engage in that and they they just yeah. completely lose themselves in the flow of those questions and answers. Yeah. Once the shell is broken open, if you will. And I think it's the finding the magic check-in question is similar to these questions because you have to find a balance not to be too superficial or scare someone off and not to go too deep too quickly. Mm -hmm. So it must be an interest. It must be one of those questions that you read and you're like, huh. And then you become curious and then you ask it. But it needs right. to be such a huh question. Yes. And that's a tough one, isn't it? Because how do you match that to the 15 people in your room and you may have brought 15 questions? Which one is the right one? Mm. Yeah, but but you might say that's the uh, that's the thrill or that's the magic of it. Can you find questions, starting openers, that will match the people yeah. in the room? And then again, when we host a workshop, we know the people who are coming, or we we get an understanding of who they are. And if we're inviting fifteen guests, you might think we know them even better. That's true. But they might also be more averse to facilitation. Yes. yes. Depending on who they are and how well they know you and how well they respect. Uh, because I find that people are very conscious of when there's too much form, when there's too much process, if you will, uh, and not the, uh, the the freedom to engage in whatever conversation, however I want to do this. If they feel they're being guided when they're off work, off duty, it's very easy for people to feel and nudged or even manipulated, and they will re rebel against that if there's yeah. too much structure. And that's that's when people say, sit down, stop facilitating. Okay, 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 I won't. Yeah. Um, even though you might, and this is something, so what we're talking about now, I would say, I would call that meeting design more than facilitation, really, because I tend to think of facilitation as being that which you do live, sort of in the middle of events as people are talking and you're making a statement or an interjection or a change of course or a comment or a question uh, that's facilitation and that you can do if you have a group of six friends sitting around a table or six colleagues at lunch and four or five of them are taking part of the conversation and you notice that number six is not 
And when it's your turn to speak or whenever you are speaking, you can turn to that person and say, what do you think about this? Or what your experience, how is that relevant to this thing here? Just by including people who are not in the conversation at all, by inviting them in ever so discreetly, by asking them a question. Uh, and then they will answer the question, and then they will more so, more readily become part of the group. And I find that to be a very important uh, sort of sub facilitation skill to whenever you're you're in a community whenever you're in a, a group of friends or group of people talking be aware of those who are not in the group who are standing around who are sort of looking over our shoulders who want to take part or even if you're a reception or at a party and you're standing three or four people talking and there's another person walking by and looking sort of forlorn or lonely well open up the group and include that person That's a sort of process awareness that you have cultivated as a facilitator and that you can then apply to regular social uh, uh, interactions simply by by being more aware on a meta level of what's actually going on here. Yes, absolutely. And this reminds me also of the difference in ability of a facilitator, where some facilitators could sound as if they're sound directive so to to order or to point out people to participants to contribute or to speak up and others can voice an invitation yes for inclusivity and (laughs) it creates very different atmospheres and buy it from the group you're you're quite right and that's a nice distinction well put that either you're a director ordering people to speak up like a teacher would do. So you've been quiet for the past 45 minutes. What is your position on this? Don't you have anything to contribute? <laughs> or uh, simply looking at something, well, what do you think? What is your perspective on this? That's right. Very different ways. And of course, the, the invitation is the nice way of doing things. Yes. And it's to be practiced because it needs to come naturally, Right. You're saying it it needs to be practiced because it needs to come naturally. I like that. That's that's a contradiction, but it's very well put. That in fact, you need to practice in order to, to, to remain natural. natural. And it's <laughs> thank you for pointing for noticing. It is right. a contradiction, and still, I think it's true because I think the moment we step into a space and we have this responsibility, we tend to tighten up and to lose our authenticity, our natural behavior. And then we practice all of these facilitation skills so that we need to practice to sound natural again. Yes. But the funny thing is that natural sounds like before you trained it. But natural, of course, also means elegant, flowing with economy, politely, in an invitational manner. And all of those things require some practice. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, the, the skilled performer, like a ballet dancer, will dance around on stage and it looks completely natural, which is not, of course, is a, a result of decades of training. And a musician, it, it sounds so spontaneous and elegant and graceful. Uh, but of course, that is, and, and you say, you might say with facilitation, it has to be practiced in order to become natural and organic and obvious yeah. and pure, of course. Well, yes, right. Thank you. Good one. Before we move to self-determination theory, what makes a workshop fail according to you? 
Well, in this context, we might say inattention on the part of the facilitator. So I generally put much responsibility on the shoulders of the facilitator, whereas classically people will say, well, participants, they have a responsibility to be this and that and do this and that. And that's true, of course. But if we are facilitators and we are in the space of facilitation or talking about facilitation, let's see what a facilitator can do. So if a facilitator hasn't prepared well enough or isn't attentive during the workshop, things may take off in unexpected directions, and they will unless the facilitator is able to provide the uh, the right amount of um, discreet and, uh, and friendly structure that uh, invites people to participate in the manner intended by the facilitator. So if there's no structure, people will just throw in whatever they, they, they want to talk about, and they will try to capture the attention of the meeting or the workshop and have everybody talk about their interests. And of course, that's very natural because what I think is important here, I'd like other people to address as well if I'm a participant. And uh, everybody will do that. And that's why we have conflict in meetings and workshops and, and people can't disagree and they can't get the the ship to sail in the same direction because everybody's uh, paddling in their own direction. That's that I would say that's the responsibility of the facilitator to make sure what is the purpose of this gathering and are we on board with that? And uh, here is the structure. First, we'll do this and then we'll do that and then we'll do that. And then it's over because then we have a shared understanding of what we're doing. So how about that? When meetings fail, when workshops fail, it's because of inattentive or incomplete facilitation. And it's interesting that you're mentioning that because it can have so many different origins. It can either be that the facilitator doesn't dare to intervene, so it's a lack mm-hmm. of courage, or the facilitator didn't prepare the structure in advance, so then it's lack of preparedness. It can be lack of guidance during the conversation, or fail to explain what the actual purpose is so that everyone in the meeting thinks that they're actually speaking on topic, but they have all very different topics in mind. Yes. And there you mentioned four different uh, sub-causes or reasons why a facilitator may fail. And you're quite right. But I would like to think, well, I don't usually think why do things fail because I'm much more concerned with how do they succeed. So it's only like looking back on what meetings and workshops have I participated in that seemed to fail and why was that? And it's usually due to lack of facilitation or somebody who's just like keeping a, a list of speakers and then people will indicate by raising their hand and they will be placed on the list of speakers and then 17 minutes later they will uh, they will be their turn and then they address something that was said 18 minutes previously and you have these uh, terrible layered conversations with four topics being discussed at the same time because there's no facilitation there's only somebody who keeps track of who indicates when and yes. um, that's a complete abdication of the responsibility of facilitating. So those are the instances where workshops fail. And it's a beautiful example. The speaking list is a beautiful example how the form shapes the content and shapes also the interaction. Because if we have a speaker's list, 
as soon as I'm on the speaker's list, I stop listening to all the other people because I have to focus on what I want to say. Otherwise, I forget it. Exactly. So how to kill a fruitful conversation and collaboration is by keeping a speaker's list. Yes. And that's a big challenge when you have a meeting with 10 or 20 people because so many often will speak at the same time that the uh, that the meeting manager or the chairperson resorts to keeping a speaker's list. And that's sort of when you when you have given up on focusing this conversation and you just pe let people speak one at a time. Like you would in a, at a general assembly of sorts or a huge formal gathering meeting, a convention or a, a meeting of shareholders in a company. And then speakers' lists may be appropriate, but not in sort of regular work meetings with five or 15 people. You should try and, uh, and, and keep the flow of the conversation focused and let people contribute when they have something relevant to say and help them hold back when they don't. Yes. And I was just thinking that maybe sometimes there's a good reason to have these speakers lists if there's a shareholder meeting and the chairperson actually doesn't want a fruitful conversation, everyone listening to each other, because this could become uncomfortable for the chairperson. It's a beautiful way to just distract from any uncomfortable questions. Maybe it's sort of a divide and rule kind of thing. If I just split up this uh, conversation into 50 different little pieces, there will be no coherence and no shared consensus will arise in this and we can move on and do whatever we want, having had our shareholders meeting now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah. That's why I think having the chairperson or the the host of a meeting facilitating it, I think is one of the biggest mistakes teams and companies could do. Uh, I agree. For that reason. Get a professional facilitator to do these things and, and let the chairperson think about something else and contribute. Yes. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. In our exploration call, you mentioned self-determination theory in the context of discussing why there isn't a theoretical basis for facilitation. And if I remember correctly, you said that self-determination theory is what in your opinion, comes closest to have the potential to be a theoretical basis for facilitation. And I'm intrigued. So maybe you can just summarize for the audience who might not be familiar with self-determination theory, what it is, and then what you meant by it. Sure. So self-determination theory is a theory of uh, human motivation and personality and development that was uh, inaugurated or started almost 50 years ago by a couple of American research psychologists, Edward Deasy and Richard Ryan, Deasy and Ryan. And uh, it has sort of over the decades since then expanded into a fairly large international research program with hundreds of uh, uh, psychologists and sociologists and other people uh, joining in and uh, using those uh, the central concepts of that theory to uh, investigate many different psychological and social phenomena. And key terms in that theory are uh, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Uh, so it's a motivational psychology also that distinguishes between uh, extrinsic motivation, which is the classical behaviorist sort of, maybe we can get people to do things if we give them 
rewards or punish them by threats or deadlines or supervision or whatever. So a, a classic problem in the in in the mid twentieth century was with you know how do you get factory workers to to want to work? How do you get school children to want to go to school? How do we motivate them? So perhaps we can reward them, and we can also maybe do other things, get them tasks that are interesting and uh, uh, make them feel good about themselves and so on. Maybe we can motivate them by piling on all kinds of motivational reward factors. And uh, DC came along in the early 70s and said, well, it's not a matter of quantity of motivation, that the more you pile on, the more motivated people will be. It's more a matter of the quality of motivation. And he distinguished between two different kinds. One is extrinsic and the other is intrinsic. So extrinsic motivation are those things that are different from the activity itself, like rewards and punishments. They're outside the activity. Intrinsic motivation is when you find the activity to be fun or enjoyable or exciting or interesting doing. Uh, so if you want to do the activity for its own sake, if you will, not necessarily for its own sake, but because it's fun or interesting to do it, like most people have with their hobbies, people select a hobby because it's nice to do it just for its own sake. You solve crossword puzzles or you read books or you play the piano in the basement. You do those things for the intrinsic rewards of it. And then their, their major com- accomplishment was to show that, that extrinsic motivational factors tend to decrease intrinsic motivation. The more you punish or even reward people, the less concerned they will be with doing the activity because it's fun in and of itself. They will tend to think, okay, I'm going to school and I'm learning about Shakespeare and uh, grammar and so on because the teacher wants me to, not because it's interesting in and of itself. So the whole lesson of that was go slow, go easy on extrinsic motivation if you want people to become interested. And usually that's what we want with our kids when they go to school. So don't uh, reward them with uh, money or grades too much. Unfortunately, our whole schooling system is based very much on achieving the right grade. So intrinsic motivation is very, very important, they say. And why is that? Is that because we have some sort of need for being autonomous and self-determined? Is that why we resist extrinsic motivational factors? Is that why we feel manipulated when somebody offers us a reward in order to do something? Yes, they concluded that's what it is. People want to be self-determined and they call this autonomous and they started claiming in the 80s, 1980s, that maybe people have a need, an inborn need for being autonomous, for deciding for themselves, for being free from external controls and pressures. And that's a very basic point, and everybody agrees, sure, yes, that's the case. So along with the need for autonomy, they also established a need for competence, because if you're autonomous and you can make decisions for yourself and people really want to do that, You also have to have the skill in order to act on that autonomy. And skill is competence. So you develop by being given optimal challenges so you can develop yourself and develop your competence. And they added a third need when they realized that, well, people are not individuals. We do all this in a social context. We're raised by 
uh, caregivers, and we are surrounded by people all our lives. So all of this happens in a social context. So a need for belonging or relatedness, as they call it, is also a basic human need. So that developed into what they call the basic psychological needs theory, that everybody is motivated by the three needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Those are major driving factors in people's lives. And to be happy and to flourish and to grow up and to develop into mature human beings, we need to have those needs attended to and cared for when we grow up and when we are young and when we are grown-ups as well. We need to feel autonomous, which is not the same as saying we need to be independent of others. You can be autonomous even if uh, you are given advice by somebody else, even if you enter into bonds and obligations with other people, if you think that those obligations are right for you, and I want to be in this particular social bond with my partner or with my friends, then you are autonomous. Then you are, in a sense, uh, well, they wouldn't say free, but you are self-determined because you have chosen that obligation, that shared fellowship, that community, uh, because you think it is right for you. So people want to be autonomous and competent and feel related to others. And that's the sort of uh, psychological or psychological theory context that I have been uh, pondering, uh, as you indicated. Might that be a, an adequate social, sorry, scientific theory or sort of psychological understanding for facilitation so that we could we could argue, well, what is it a facilitator does? Well, that's help uh, an assembled group of people because that where that's where facilitation that's where facilitation is relevant. That's where you facilitate when you have a group of people together uh, in a room or, or gathered together, five or five hundred people. Uh, that's where you uh, do your thing when you facilitate. So, could facilitation be understood? as what you do when you want to meet people's needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So I've been asking myself, is this a way of sort of grounding facilitation and answering the question, what is it really that a facilitator does? Or what should be the purpose of facilitation? Well, help people meet their needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Mm. Related obvious because we're together in a room and we want to do things together and experience this sense of sharedness and community. Competence, well, you may have skills that you can't exercise when you're in a meeting, but still you want to be good. You want to uh, contribute your best. You want to say things that help the group move along, that provide inspirational input to the other people in the group so we can share our experience and our knowledge that's certainly something you want to do when you're together in a group in a, in a work situation, for example, where you want to use your skills to accomplish important things in the world. And the facilitator should help everybody challenge and each other to, uh, to grow and to share uh, their knowledge and their skills in such a way that we all become better by being together in this room. And as to the, the last need, autonomy, well, you want people to feel uh, autonomous in their lives. You want to help them feel that they're sitting in the driver's seat in their own lives. And any group you assemble, 
any work group or team. You also want them to feel that they can actually do something. They can take charge of their time and their skills and their contributions. We can do something. And this is something that a facilitator is very keen to help the people uh, that are in the room uh, with the facilitator to have that sense that we can actually do something. We are the masters of our own faiths. We can actually make decisions and we can choose courses of action and we can do things in the world. We are capable of doing that. Yes. As to the, as to the opposite, which is keeping people passive and incompetent and fragmented and lonely. And that's what a bad meeting manager or chairperson does when he assembles uh, his group of people. They sit there, they don't talk to each other, they don't know what the other people are, they feel dumb and powerless, no. uh, incompetent, and they feel, what am I doing here? I'm not controlling my time, I don't know why I'm here, I feel alienated, I, nobody sees me, what am I supposed to be doing here? I don't feel autonomous at all. So that's bad facilitation, if you like. Yeah, thank you. And I, I immediately thought while you were describing the relation between self-determination theory and the needs and facilitation, back to our example with the dinner table and the questions. So applying the needs or having them in the back of my head, then this would mean instead of putting questions there, which is you're giving them the tools and you might restrict them in their autonomy, what would work better or according to the theory would be actually to increase intrinsic motivation by making them curious about each other. So what instead of a question, there would be a fact about the other person. So this would enable then the, I almost called them participants, the dinner guests to, to come up with their own curious question or topic to investigate another person and thereby have autonomy. They're in charge of the content and can show their excellence because they are choosing and they are guiding the conversation. And it would create more belonging because everyone feels heard if they're really interested in me. And everyone loves reading a little fact about themselves. Right. Uh, that sounds very nice. And you're uh, sort of applying the uh, self-determination theory concepts to that excellent intrinsically motivated dinner conversation but i will i wouldn't rule out the questions on account of this theory because one of the ways in which the uh, need for competence uh, can be satisfied according to the according to the theory is uh, is by structure by mm -hmm. providing structure and of course structure means uh, helping mm, people to uh, handle a particular tool and you you hold the tool here at the handle and not here at the blade and and so on so providing structure and helping people navigate an open space or an unfamiliar space it can be very empowering so giving people a question to ask may also be experienced as a uh, providing structure to our conversation and people may feel that's nice I like it when I know what to ask of the person sitting next to, to me. If I, if I didn't know what to say, then that could be helpful. So, and that's the point that autonomy is not the opposite of structure. They mm -hmm. can go together. So you can feel empowered and able to act if you're given structure like a question like that. But we can't sort of say in absolute 
objective terms, whether a, a question put to people on a card on a table, whether that will be good for people's needs or not. It sort of depends on the situation and all the, the delicate little uh, contextual factors that go into what makes. But, but the important thing is to be here, as you were doing yourself when you uh, thought about this, is to be attentive to what is it that people really want what is it that they really need when they're together? And this is where the theory says, well, they, they want autonomy and competence and relatedness. And those, I think, are good guidelines for a facilitator. Yeah, if I can cover those bases, I think we're, we're doing a good job here. Yeah. And I think for any manager or team leader who have general meetings, just having a checklist with three questions to check whether they're creating or allowing autonomy, competence, and relatedness in all the gatherings or encounters that they host or invite to. This would already improve so many things. Because yeah. what you mentioned in the introduction was also the, the negative effect of not or badly facilitated meetings. So if we have the speakers list or the chair who only speaks then people don't feel autonomous. They don't feel the competence and they um, don't feel related. So they feel lonely. They feel dumb. They, they zone out. And this is actually a, a huge risk. And I think the figures on loneliness as the new smoking. Oh, uh, in terms of, um, right, a health risk. Yes. Yes, you're quite right. Loneliness as the new smoking. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I think I read yeah, it somewhere right. that loneliness kills more than smoking nowadays. Interesting. And yeah, then a facilitation can be a cure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we know that that that, that being close to and interacting with other people is very uh, uh, useful for your health. And this is an established fact. And we know that that people with social networks and social interactions and then researchers have counted this, how many interactions and so on, without even considering how the quality of these interactions, uh, there's a correlation there. And uh, no wonder, since we are social beings, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's shocking really to consider how lonely we uh, make people be in meetings where they are being talked at by important people. And if you have 15 people in the meeting, there are usually three or four or five who don't say anything at all, if not more, because there are a few people who are allowed to speak or who are very talkative or who are given the occasion to speak. And those who don't force themselves into the group, they will sit there for an hour or two and not say a single word. And that is a very lonesome experience. And the people will wonder, why the hell am I here? So yeah. there's a huge task for a facilitator to make that space more inclusive, like breaking the group up into little pairs, parents share or trios of people talking together for 10 minutes, just to get that sense that, yes, I am here. My voice matters. I have talked to another person during the whole hour. I was here, if only for five minutes, I got to say what I thought was right and proper, even though it wasn't to the whole group of 30 people that may be too intimidating to me, but I can speak my mind to two other people uh, for 10 minutes. So yeah. these things a facilitator definitely needs to do to improve health is what you're saying. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Maybe we can ask for a grant from the Ministry of Health for more well, facilitators. No, that, that wouldn't be so um, 
how to decrease loneliness. And one institution where it's even more important and well recognized is school and further education. Uh, dropping out of college and university for loneliness is so common that it's like screams. If you want more people to get something out of the education, make sure that they're socially involved as well. And institutions yes. are generally very bad at that. And I think it is. I totally agree. And I think helping educators to gain more facilitation skills would help that because I think even for adults, And not only the Danes, <laughs> we don't necessarily always like to talk to strangers. One of my favorite studies where they interviewed commuters to work and a random group had to speak to their neighbors during the morning commute and the other didn't. And they found a significant increase in satisfaction, happiness, productivity at work when they were forced to talk to a random person during their morning commute although wow. they didn't want to. Wow. And this was for both those who were talked to and those who had to initiate the conversation. Uh -huh. And there I was think, a measurable effect on their workday afterwards? Yeah. Wow, that's wild. Right? Sure. And it makes Why total not? sense. And You come to work not depressed and lonely and self-centered as you were sitting in that train all by yourself, surrounded by these other people. Yes. that you had no relation to at all, but you've talked to somebody for 15 minutes and you get to work and you're starting to work on a good day. On a You good, feel seen. A, you feel right. seen. You, you have a small impact. At least you generated a smile in someone. Right. And I think for, for young adults, it's even more difficult. Absolutely. So if, if at university there isn't, or a school, there isn't the teacher who actually not just put the students to speak to each other, to cooperate, collaborate, to turn to their neighbor, then no wonder that they feel lonely. Exactly. And the whole setup for higher education, of course, is the lecture, where the professor will speak for an hour and everybody leaves. Or the professor will speak for 50 minutes and then there are 10 minutes of uh, Q&A afterwards. But no interaction in the room. Yeah. And most academics uh, who do this, they don't know how to facilitate. And they, younger academics do care, but older don't. They think that's I'm not a I'm not a nursery teacher here. And yeah. You can take care of your social life by yourself, which means that there is no taking care of unless people are adept at socializing. And many young people, as you're saying, are not and find it difficult yeah. to speak to strangers. And then, yeah, I think with the entire lockdown situation and then having lecture on Zoom where you cannot even share the break with the student. I heard of students who for two years haven't spoken to one classmate, not to that's a single terrible. one. That's terrible. That's just so terrible. It is mm -hmm. sad. Back to the meeting space, I wonder what is actually worse, whether the situation of being talked at in a meeting in the physical space is actually even worse than online because online you can at least, you can open another tab, you're in your environment, you can find ways to just at least distract yourself so that mm -hmm. you don't feel like a prisoner and trapped. Whereas being in the physical space, 
forced to sit around a table and listen to one person. I think this can do something to our psyche in terms of anger and frustration. It's, it certainly isn't helpful. And what you're suggesting here is might it be directly harmful? And in a way, I can see that because you're sitting, my last meeting, I was sitting next to a, a person on my left whom I didn't know who arrived late and sort of wedged her chair in to my left. And she was sitting there for like 45 minutes while all this conversation was going on, mostly the, the manager speaking, but also some of the others. And I didn't get a chance to exchange glances with her or even or meet her, of course. And I felt, whoa, this is weird. And she must have felt the same, that you're sitting so close to another person, not interacting. That's sort of unnatural. I mean, where else in the world or where else uh, 50,000 years ago would you sit next to another person like within 50 centimeters for 45 minutes and not interact, not even look that person in the eye? That is so weird. And our body may well perceive that as being an outright act of hostility or even aggression. Consider that. Isn't that wild? That we're sitting, being being forced there, and we're, we're not, our culture does not make it imperative that we greet people who sit down next to us in a strange type of lecture situation. People can do that. In England, when I studied there, my first lecture, the uh, professor invited us all, asked us all, say hello to the people sitting next to you. And we spent two minutes just sticking our hands out in all directions and saying hello. And it was wonderful. And I've done that pretty much ever since. That you need to meet the people, if only to smile and touch hands for 10 seconds in order to feel comfortable and feel, okay, I'm in a space where people see me and recognize me. I am safe here. But because a person that you're sitting next to who looks serious in the face and is paying attention to the lecture does not look particularly friendly or nice. Yes. <clears throat> yes. And you mentioned that um, feeling safe, feeling safe. So, yes, turning to our neighbor to feel comfortable and because it's nice, that's one thing. I just wonder whether actually the safety issue has even more impact. Because when we don't feel physically safe, we cannot focus on the lecture anyway. We cannot listen. And I once read a study where they explained why we often struggle to remember the name of a person we have just met. And the explanation was that we usually say our name and then we shake hands or look in the eyes and, and speak a little bit. And our brain in these first seconds where we hear the name is too preoccupied to figure out whether the situation is actually safe. And during this part where we are not sure, are we safe or do we have to run for our lives in a minute because this tiger is going to kill us? Right. We cannot remember any information. Good point. So, and their suggestion was then, okay, if you want someone to remember your name, shake hands, smile, say something, and then say your name. Rather than before. Yes, so first after, create a situation of safety. I got it. Safe. First establish safety, and then people can start processing cognitively. That's a good point. Yeah. 
And that would explain why it's so hard to remember people's names, because it is. It's notoriously difficult. And everybody laments the fact, oh, I, I just met you, but I can't remember your name. And it's so embarrassing that two minutes later, you can't remember their names. Everybody feels that. And it's actually um, normal. Yes. <laughs> I usually get around that by just saying, what was your name again? I'm sorry, I, I forgot your name. Say your name again. And, yeah, and then I repeat their name and sort of try to be very conscious about processing this a strange fact about this person having a name. Yeah, they have a name. But you're quite right. Establishing security is probably on a very primal level so important that much other higher level intellectual processing doesn't occur. And and you're quite right. And, I, and I've heard people say this, that if I'm forced to sit in a new position in the classroom, I, I can't hear what's going on because I feel so uncomfortable about those people sitting next to me. Are they going to kill me or are they tigers in disguise or whatever? Yeah. There could be things that are going on at a, at a deeper level that, uh, Jesus Christ, what an educated the teacher, the professor could do simply to increase learning in the room, probably by 20%, just by spending 30 seconds having people meet their neighbors. This would That's be interesting. a very interesting experiment, actually. Yes, it would, very Hmm. Need right. to get in touch with my behavioral economist friends, all social psychologists. Right. I mentioned to you in our talk before that I have just completed a manuscript for a book called The um, Facilitating Educator, where I introduce a number of these points that all the things that an educator can do in order to facilitate the room that he or she is in so as to make it more safe and comfortable and make it a, a useful learning space to be in by helping people meet each other and talk to each other and do things socially and academically as well. There's a huge scope for improvement in many teachers and educators there. Yes. What do you think is the lowest hanging fruit? So what is the easiest thing they could do? Well, my mind right now is dominated by the conversation we just had, probably by saying to people, why don't you say hello to your neighbor? What I do sometimes is like five minutes or three minutes before the lecture starts, I will call attention and say, we're starting in five minutes, but why don't you say hello to the people sitting around you? Mm. And, and they will. And I also sometimes tell them, if somebody else comes in, over the next five minutes, include them too. So that's a, or you can even do that after you've started your lecture. Welcome, today's topic is blah, blah, blah. Before we start, why don't you shake hands with the people sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you? And that will sort of raise the uh, the, the tone of the meeting a little. So we could call that one low-hanging fruit, right? And it's it's interesting because what I immediately thought was, that this actually requires almost a paradigm shift because maybe uni has changed, but when I was a student, the professors were mostly preoccupied to make sure that we are not talking to our neighbors. Hmm. And right. anything that would increase the odds of us talking to the neighbors instead of listening to the professor is just killed as it its roots right before it could even grow roots <laughs> but that's because he doesn't want you or the professor didn't want you to talk while he or she was talking right and that that's i think is fair and proper but then the professor should stop talking and give room and that would be another low hanging fruit asking people to talk to their neighbor about the material just presented for the past 20 minutes and they can do that for five minutes 
And then we're back to the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, because I think the reason professors would do that, and I think even some facilitators do it differently. So professors don't want students to speak to their neighbors, because if they get along too well, then the likelihood is higher that they will speak about unrelated topics and not listen. So by avoiding that, that's kind of an extrinsic nudge. Let's not call it motivation, not to get distracted. Whereas the intrinsic motivation would be how can the professor or the facilitator compete with these other distractions by creating input or activities that are interesting enough for the students to pay attention. Yes. And that's the matter of providing structure that is appropriate. And the structure that says, I'm speaking at you for 60 minutes and then you may leave. That's a terrible structure. So a structure that says, okay, I will give you input for 20 minutes and then you'll talk to each other for 10 minutes. And then we'll take some questions in the plenary for 10 minutes. Then I'll round off by talking for 10 minutes. And then for the last five minutes, something else. That's a more inviting and open structure that allows people to feel and talk to their neighbors. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a time well spent because people can't handle 60 minutes of information anyway, uh, process that. And they will feel just along the lines of what we just talked about they will feel more safe in the room and they will enjoy coming back because this is the lecture where I actually get to meet new people. Yeah. Whereas all the other lectures, I just sit there by myself. So this might be a huge gain for the professor and for the subject, for the academic subject as well, that we actually are in a structure that invites our participation and presence in such a way that this might rub off on the uh, academic content on the lecture. I like this content because we're given such a nice structure to talk about it. Yes, I think, again, that's a paradigm shift <laughs> because, and again, it reminds me of a big misconception of what's happening in meetings. So what I could see professors or lecturers think is, oh, but I cannot squeeze my content in 20 plus 10 minutes. There's so much content, I need the full 60 minutes. The fact that actually nobody can focus for so long and nobody can even remember any of that is irrelevant. So they're creating the illusion that everyone who's sitting there just by their physical presence has absorbed the information and thereby must know or must be able to prepare for the exam. And I think we're doing a similar mistake with meetings where we have meetings and just by the pure presence of everyone, we assume that they have absorbed the information. Although online or even offline, I would say 80% of the participants answer their emails or discuss something that has nothing to do with the meeting. And then as an effect, The host of the meeting believes that everyone is informed because they were there. So everyone agreed. And I think that's a big risk, the illusion of information. Absolutely. That's the the transmission model of communication or the, uh, in Danish, we have another word for it, the gas station attendant 
model of knowledge transfer. Hey, you drive your little car. This was in the olden days when there was a gas station attendant and he would put gasoline into your car and you would drive off energized. That's the old belief about schooling. If you just sit there and open your ears, all this information will pour in and you will go out and you can regurgitate all that exactly at the exam later on. And uh, that model is so trite and so boring and absolutely nobody believes it. Yet we still have organizational and educational structures that tap very much into that model. So that's a huge problem, as you're saying. Yeah. And maybe it's just the same problem that, was it Hemingway who said, if I've had more time, I would have written a shorter letter? Yeah, exactly. Was that Mark Twain? Did you Mark Twain, yes. Yes, yes, yes. If um, I, had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. <laughs> exactly. So, and your point about the lectures, it's a huge act of uh, intellectual uh, masturbation when a, a professor speaks for an hour because my stuff is so important that I cannot possibly cram it into a half an hour, even 20 minutes. Um, that's just terrible. But that's that's the fact. It's, it's really that way a professor's mind works. My stuff is so important. Yeah. I cannot allow time for We don't have time for facilitation. And the students are here to learn from me. And how could they possibly learn from each other? And I think right. having students explain or exchange on the content is one of the best ways to make them really understand and also to understand what they don't understand. And then they will ask the questions to clarify and actually be engaged because then they have the autonomy. They're they're asking the questions. They're curious. They gain the competence. I have a sense of belonging. Again. Your checklist. There's an example. Yeah, those three needs uh, serve as well in that situation. You're quite right. Mm. <clears throat> After so many years of facilitating and training facilitators, what would you consider your number one challenge? I don't know that I have ranked them per se. It's a good question. Maybe I don't think so much in terms of challenges as things that need to be done, because I think that the culture is changing. I think people, more people are being, are being, becoming aware of the uh, potentials of facilitation. I think certainly the meeting culture is changing. So I, I have more of a sense that things are going well rather than of there being unmet challenges. Maybe because right now I'm thinking about the professional domain. Maybe there's more of a challenge in the social domain, changing the social mores for being together, this sense of group cohesion, but aloofness to strangers that I indicated was characteristic of Danish or Northern Nordic culture. That's 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 more of a challenge. I would mm. like us to be more Italian or American or Mexican, sort of in, in the in the way that we deal with strangers at the bus stop, in the street, at parties and so on. How can we become more inclusive? And rely less on alcohol and um, more on skill in meeting and seeing and addressing other people so as to create um, a, a more open uh, social space, if you will. That's sort of a local challenge, I would say, in Denmark. Uh, and there I don't see as much progress as I see in the professional domain. Mm. Uh, things are changing. Thank you. And it immediately made me think, what would be the equivalent of question cards around the dinner table 
what would be the equivalent at a bus stop or in public transportation? Right. So what could be the nudges in our public environment that would maybe just invite conversations? Oh, as you're waiting here, why don't you smile at your neighbor and ask right. them how they're doing? Right. But, but that's, I mean, that's where your question of a challenge really uh, appears uh, appropriate to me because that's a huge thing. Because that's like five million people, as there are five million Danes, uh, walking into the street every day and paying attention to other people or being open to being addressed. We don't have to go and talk to each other all the time. But just the fact of being approached by a stranger on a bus is like, if you do that, you're considered psychotic. <laughs> right, exactly. You're making a face right now. It's like, Jesus, <laughs> somebody is talking to me on the bus. Are you crazy? And this thing, I understand that in other countries, when you go into a train, in some other countries, you will go and sit next to the other person, the single person who's in the who's on the train in the departing compartment. Whereas in Denmark, you'll sit as far as that person from by as possible, so as not to impose yourself on that person. So how could all that become possible? What would be the little nudges there? What would be the way of culturally of cultural redesign? That's a big question. That's yeah. a good question. I think I would start with this whole business about alcohol, which is so prevalent in Denmark and in other cultures as well, that that alcohol, a couple of drinks will smoothen up and make people relax and loosen their tongues. And uh, and unfortunately, so often in Denmark, it doesn't start. It doesn't end with a couple of drinks. It goes on to, to become absolutely drunk and stupor. Uh, and that's terrible that young people... Uh, should have to uh, indulge in that in order to find a mate and raise a family. So that's weird. Yeah, this so, is... So maybe the party culture, you're thinking, what are you saying? Yeah, I was, I was thinking of this uh, amazing Danish movie, Drunk. Yes, did you see that? Fantastic movie. But, I didn't uh, see it, so I'm not totally... Watch it. I can one, really, really one. recommend it. Why was it fantastic? Because it was a fantastic acting skills, so good actors. Mm -hmm. The topic is serious and still they brought it to a deep level in a very humorous way without sugarcoating the topic. And it revealed it was such a nice zoom in on relational problems and the complexity of interpersonal relations relationships, friendship, family, love, loneliness, mm -hmm. and alcohol. Right. <laughs> so I can really recommend it. Was it a Danish movie in the sense of, uh, of uh, sure it was about being drunk, right? But yes. did, it, did it celebrate drunkenness? So the plot is that there are four teacher friends and they're engaging in an experiment because they read that Humans were born with one per mil too little alcohol. Right. And hence we are completely depressed and we're living below our potential. And if we would just have one per mil more, we would be at our best. So they run the experiment that they keep a constant level of one per mil over the day. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, it goes wrong because it doesn't stop there. Right. One drink takes another. Yes. 
Yes. And to come back to our social experiment, I think what you said um, was it doesn't necessarily need a full conversation, but maybe just looking up and smiling would be sufficient. And I just remember I'm at the moment I I'm running. So I'm in Australia at the moment. So the weather is nice and I'm running every morning around a lake. And there's some people that I see there every morning. And most look up and smile and even greet. Even bikers here greet a jogger, something that wouldn't happen uh, in many other parts of the world. And then there's this one particular jogger. He only looks on the ground. And I tried the attempt to greet him a couple of times or to smile. And it does have an effect. So two yeah. encounters, one with a person just smiling or nodding or raising the hand and one person just actively, I'm sure they have, he has his reasons. So I'm not judging, but I'm just noticing the effect it has on me. Someone who is clearly looking away and ignoring. And I think just having nudges with, okay, look up from your phone, uh, look around you instead of isolating with the screen, I think would already make a big difference, actually. Yes, you're quite right. But the and those those individual uh, initiatives and what you can do are of course important. And when you try them, they may have a huge impact on you, as you just described. But the the big question is, you know, how to institutionalize that, how to make it culturally the norm. That's the difficult thing. And what the uh, the telephone the, the cell phone did was to provide such an institutional context. Everybody needed one of those. Everybody bought one, and now we're looking at it. Yeah. And since we now have it, we don't readily look up because there's something really exciting going on in the, in the palm of our hands where the telephone is. So the question is more of how do you get everybody to do something? And that's the power of facilitation, because when you have 20 people in the room, you as the facilitator can say, I would like you all to talk to the person next to you for five minutes about topic X. Go ahead. And people will do it. Because you control the institutional contact, as it were. But you don't. People don't have that mandate at the bus stop in the street. There is nobody telling you what to do. There's nobody facilitating. And rightly so. We wouldn't want that, really. But if we want the sort of culture, at least which I think we need in Denmark, that is more open to strangers and include people we don't know, such that we may know them and include them more, how do we affect that change? Individual initiative is great, uh, but it's such a slow process, really. I would love to have it more institutionalized. And that's yeah. why I mentioned this thing about drinking, because hosts who invite people to a party can set a norm for what's happening here. Are we getting plastered within the first hour or do we drink non-alcoholic? Non-alcoholic beer is becoming quite fashionable in Denmark right now. Yeah. So that may be a way forward. Just drink this watery, thin stuff and see if you can get by by your own devices, by having other processes or doing other things. I would love that to happen. Mm. <laughs> yes. So challenge to the audience. Well, the challenge may be uh, use broad facilitation skills to affect uh, culturally wide changes in the way we relate to strangers yeah beautiful thank you very good thank you too beautiful conversation thank you i enjoyed it hello listener are you tired of listening to my podcast voice praising our sponsor session lab in each episode i think it's time to pass the mic over to you 
So if you are as much of a Session Lab fan and user as I am, please share your experience and praise and don't be shy of adding a sentence of self-promo. Send me your soundbite and you might hear yourself on the next show and find your name and URL in the show notes. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.